Good evening, everyone. Pleasure to be here with you. As was said, my commute was very long. I live about five houses, six houses down on the other side of the street. Um, and we are welcoming Bill to the neighborhood as well. So good to have you, Bill. Well, we are looking tonight at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. It may say that till 21. I found out I only have an hour to preach instead of an hour and a half like I get normally. So we'll cut it down a little bit. I'm kidding. Guys, seriously. Uh, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, would you fall on us? Would you open our hearts, uh, illuminate us with the power of this text, the power of the crucified and risen Christ, and then the power to go out, live to change lives in response. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We are going to look at this particular text in two parts today. I'm going to read them in two different sections. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 and then verses 6 to 13. So just so that uh, you can know to expect that. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. In this passage, uh, Paul is challenging a congregation to look through a different cultural lens. We often, in the way that we go about our lives, just like this church, look through the lens of our culture at the way that we think sh things should be and the way that we should operate. Often we operate out of those cultural views, cultural expectations, cultural wor worldviews, instead of a, a worldview and a cultural view that is actually grounded in Scripture. Paul is challenging a church, probably the church that he challenges the hardest on a whole variety of topics, and one of the topics that he actually challenges them on is how to look at church leadership. That's what we're looking at here tonight, uh, because I think just like this particular church, we tend to look at church leadership and the way that we want to be viewed, not just as church leaders, but just Christians in general. We want to look, uh, have others look at us through a lens of cultural respectability. Don't we? we? We kind of would like people to go, you know, I would, I would like them at least to respect what I believe, what I stand for. Now, I don't know if, if you've noticed, but that's changing a little bit. When I was growing up, uh, I still remember some ministers that were in my life that people looked to who weren't even Christians, who would go to on a block for advice on various things. Uh, I, I know Bill's much wiser and Ian are much wiser than him, so they probably get this, but most of my neighbors are not coming looking at that. They're, they're pushing back on so many things. The way that we are viewed in our culture has changed. But Paul here wants to give a balanced view to this congregation because they've fallen into really the same kind of worldview and lens that the wider culture has gotten in that thing. And they've been pushing back on Paul and others, and it's leading to strife and factions in that as they look at themselves and think they've arrived, and maybe some others really haven't. And it's holding them up and saying, you know, we're holding up one preacher over another and saying, this is our favorite. We're on his side and not on this guy's side. And we're really wise, and these people really aren't. Paul has been challenging this church that has been arrogant and divisive throughout, and he challenges them with God's word here. And he gives a balanced approach, because he doesn't want to just challenge their worldview and then have them hit the opposite ditch. What he does here is balances this out. He's saying church leaders are servants with authority and examples to follow, but that are still called to be humble. They're servants with authority, but they're also examples that are called to be humble. 
Would you open with me to that particular chapter? We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 first. They're servants with authority. Paul says this here. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. He's pointing out here that Christian leaders are stewards and they are servants. Now, it's interesting language here, and it's hidden a little bit in the NIV text, but what he's, he's getting at here is they are servants. They are there to serve Christ and to serve the church. That is what a leader is actually to do. It's modeled after Jesus himself, the one who would wash the disciples' feet, and yet he's saying as servants, they are still given authority. The word that he is, uh, in the Greek that's behind that is, uh, you see it is the ones who are entrusted here twice. Those who are entrusted are describing a head servant, a manager, a steward, if you will. Now, we often don't uh, use that particular language in the way in our day and age. You know, it's like, well, who's a steward? Who's a, who's a head servant? We really don't have that kind of picture. And, you know, unless you live on some kind of massive estate that you would have a, a butler or a head servant for, and if, in which case, I'm available over Christmas. So you can just invite me. You can let, let me know. We'll talk, talk after. But, but most of us don't have that experience, do we? we? We don't have some head steward, nor are we that. But Paul is saying here, here here's, here's a servant, and yet one a servant with authority. The picture that I come to is one that's probably all you guys really, really are into, Downton Abbey. Okay, guys, guys, I know the wives are nodding with me going, yeah, I get it. Guys, you can just wink. I'll just acknowledge that you got to get it too. It's actually a good show. In Downton Abbey, in this picture of uh, older England in the beginning of the 1900s and moving forward, Mr. Carson is the butler. He is the head of the staff of the whole estate in the whole house. Though he doesn't own the house, though he doesn't make the rules, he is tasked with not only his particular job, but his job is to oversee the entire staff, all the servants who are on the bottom level that run the house. His job is to make sure that the staff run and the house runs smoothly and that they are given the roles and the tasks to carry this out. He doesn't make the roles, he doesn't make the tasks, but he is charged with and tasked with making sure all of that goes out. That's the kind of picture that Paul is giving for church leaders, servants, people who come underneath, who serve, who are humble, and at the same time, they have authority to carry out the task. And note here, who is the one who's in charge? It's God. There's many jobs that a pastor or a church leader or an elder or anyone else who carries a role within a church that may carry out. But Paul is saying here, the number one task, job number one here, that this kind of servant and steward would have is to manage or steward the mysteries of God. 
That is to preach and to teach the gospel message, to show Jesus clearly, to make much of him in all that they do. They may have many other tasks that they need to carry out to assist in that, but that is job number one, to clearly proclaim Jesus and him crucified and risen. Now, Paul is balancing his leadership role under God as an apostle. And as they criticize him and are pushing back on that particular thing, he's saying, well, look, I'm both a servant here, but at the same time, I need to have you understand this authority here. Now, think of Mr. Carson, the butler. If the rest of the staff underneath, you know, the the cook, some of the other serving staff, some of the maids came and said, you know what, we would like to change the way that you run the household. What would Mr. Carson say? Well, of course, I mean, whatever you want. No, that that wouldn't make sense. Mr. Carson is responsible to the man who owns the estate. He's responsible to Robert Crawley, the Earl of Grantham. It's his home. That's who he's responsible to. And he says, so as you critique me and you look at this, really, I'm only being evaluated by God. It's he who evaluates me and my role here and any other church leader. It is he that I answer to. It is he who has tasked me and entrusted me with not only the job, but the authority then to carry it out. If you're going to evaluate me, you need to understand the criteria. My job is to carry out and proclaim the mysteries of God and manage that task. He's saying, it's not actually your role to do it. Now, the question that may come to mind is then, well, are just church leaders and pastors just kind of authorities onto themselves that no one can challenge? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here in the wider council of Scripture. I think you see some other stuff. And this is where I appreciate the kind of church government that your denomination and mine share, where we come together and churches and leaders come together, where we challenge one another with the Word of God and we hold one another accountable to those things. That's a good thing. Paul is not saying here is, I don't want to be accountable to to anybody, but what he's saying here is, ultimately, I am accountable to the one who has given me the job, God himself. And he's saying, look, so your opinion may matter a little tiny bit. It's not that I don't listen to you, but ultimately, I need to be responsible to him. And notice what he says here. I don't even judge myself. He says, it's not even my role to judge myself in that way. That's God's and ultimately Christ's when he returns. And at that time, God is the one who will receive their praise and reflect that back to them as well. Even his own opinion is of little consequence. Jesus is the only one who can fully and accurately judge not only the outward actions, but the inward actions and motivations of our heart. That is true, both of us as church leaders and those of us who come and are part of the wider church community. Second thing that we see here is that church leaders are examples, but they're called to be humble. This actually fits with the idea of a servant, doesn't it? You're called to be humble if you're a servant. Let's look at verses 6 to 13. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, 
I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go what is beyond, but do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up by being a follower of one of us over the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did re- didn't receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those contend, condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle of the whole universe angels as well as human beings. We're fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth garbage of the world right up to this moment. It's kind of a shocking little piece of scripture, isn't it? He's describing the glorious role of being a servant entrusted with the very mysteries of God. He actually has a bit of a sarcastic tone with this particular congregation. The beginning, he's demonstrating the power of living according to Scripture, that he and Apollos are trying, another preacher who has been with them, that are trying to model, and he's saying, I refuse, and he refuses to go beyond what is written here. It's a tough verse, but I think what it's getting at is he's beginning to point back to all the other places that he's quoted Scripture or alluded to it in the previous chapters up to this point, and he's saying, look, think about what those say. They are pointing to the supremacy of Christ and to our own need for humility. We're not so wise on our own. He's also referencing the Bible as authoritative here. That is the thing that we are called to live according to. It's not only great stories or doctrines, but it actually calls us to live and conform our lives and shape our lives in how we live in response to it. He's saying, and yet, you are boasting, you're arrogant in the way that you're treating me, in the way that you are treating Christ, the way that you are treating one another. You think that you've arrived, and yet you've not. There is a real element here of sarcasm. Now, this is maybe something that would shock you if you are new to Scripture, but Paul is actually sarcastic occasionally which is good because he and I will get along then. It's one of my love languages. Um, It's not listed as one of the five love languages, but I am going to talk to Gary Chapman and see if we can get it inserted in the next edition because I think there's something to it because he's really saying, trying to kind of gently poke fun of them to get to see, do you see what you look like here? Do, do Do you actually see what you sound like? You're acting like you have it all together. You're acting like you're so wise. Your life is pulled together. And he's saying, but that's not the way that it is. And he's saying, now take a look at the apostles' lives. Take a look at my life. You may think you are pulled together and polished and wise, honored, 
strong, all these words that he uses. But he goes, that is not the experience of those who've been entrusted with the mysteries of the gospel. We're actually called to a deep place of humility here, saying you have received everything from God. That means it's all a gift of grace. You didn't bring it into your life. God has lavished something upon you. So quit acting as if you have brought all these good things into your life when you haven't. Andrew Wilson says this. He says, grace, more than any other Christian teaching, pulls the rug out from under our self-reliance, our boasting, and our pride. Grace. Saying here is the purpose is actually to keep them humble, that the Bible and grace actually leads you to humility, not arrogance. Instead of boasting in how wise you are, you're actually back holds a bow the knee and say, I actually need to pray for wisdom, recognizing God grants it liberally. In a way, he's kind of trying to bring them down a notch. They're acting as if they're superior and full and rich and strong, acting as if they are kings who are actually sitting and reigning on the throne. But he contrasts this superior self-view with their actual reality of he as a church leader and the other apostles. Notice the contrast here. They desire comfort. They desire respectability. They desire some strength and power and ability to influence things in the world. And he's saying, notice how we're living here. Notice what's going on here. Notice the contrast in this passage. Saying, actually, if you take a look at the apostle's life and my life, if anything, we're at the end of the procession. He's referencing there the Roman triumphs. If a Roman general was successful, they would be given sometimes permission to carry out a triumph into Rome, to march through the gates of Rome with, on a, in a chariot with a servant fanning them and whispering in the ear, you are not a god, you are not a god, you are not a god, just trying to keep their heads from bursting. And behind them came all the, 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 the boot, booty and, and all the, the spoils of the war that they had conquered over and all their conquering armies, and at the very back in the line were the unfortunate souls who had been conquered and were being triumphed and pointed to and mocked and jeered. He's saying, you want to look at that? That's actually closer to the picture of what I experienced. You want cultural respectability. You want cultural influence and power. Take a look at my life. That's actually not it. You know what happened to the guys at the end of the thing? At Once the triumph was done, once the party was over, they were either killed or put into slavery. Picture of humility, not triumphal Christianity here. And look what he's saying here. And it's just, this isn't even something that just happens to be. It's not just that I've experienced some bad luck. He is saying here, God has put us Apostles on display, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Not just some accident, not just bad luck. God's done this. Why? Well, what's going on here? I think he's saying is that Christian leaders, and therefore by extension, 
Christians and Christian people should not just expect cultural respectability and power and easy life. It's not Paul's experience and by extension, if you pull it into the bigger picture of Christianity, it's not actually the experience of the one who founded the faith, Jesus Christ himself. That was not the experience of Jesus. It's not the experience of Paul. It's not the experience of the apostles. The gospel is actually that God in Jesus demonstrates a new picture of leadership. One who comes as a suffering servant. One who has all power and glory and honor at his fingertips and yet is willing to lay it aside for the sake of the rescue of the world. God entered into human pain and suffering, laid aside his glory and reputation as he took on human flesh to serve the world and at the same time serve the world with the authority of the coming and reigning present king who would conquer everything and yet was willing to lay down his life in order, in order to actually do that, it cost him everything. Think of what happened to Jesus at the cross. Stripped, scorned, slandered, shamed. In the language that Paul uses here, Jesus was treated like the scum of the earth as garbage on the human garbage heap. That's how he was treated. Not what he deserved, but what he was willing to do to lead us to a new place of life with God. Think of Isaiah 53, that great, beautiful passage in the Old Testament. You read a few verses from that. Isaiah 53, we'll just look at the second part of verse 2 to 5. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. Picture that Jesus gives of himself is of a suffering servant. Yes, with all authority and glory and honor due to him. But at the same time, that is how he leads that is how he comes to rescue the world. And that is the path to true glory in his ascension and his resurrection in God's sight, even if it's not in the eyes of the entire world. Jesus and his, his leaders and his followers then are actually to reflect this kind of life, this kind of leadership as they point to Christ, as they share in his sufferings, and they live out of the power of the gospel. As Christ is, so leaders and so followers. There to be an example here. That means this is not just talking about your pastors. Not just talking about your elder team or your deacons. As this is the way of Christ, it means it's also our way as well. 
culture. There may be times that culture applauds us, celebrates the church and what it does, celebrates our mercy ministry or something else that we say or do, but that is not what we are looking for. We are called to share in his sufferings and to point people to Christ in that way. This begins to cut against not only kind of a word, faith, and health and wealth theology. And some of you may say, well, we're really against that stuff. Yeah, but you know what? I don't know. Maybe you guys don't experience this, but I functionally want to live that way sometimes. I may say that theology is wrong, and yet when I actually look at the motivations of my heart and how I functionally live, that's actually what often is driving my decisions. And Paul is challenging us to the core of our beings here and saying that is not the way of Christ, that is not the way of the apostles. Therefore, it is not the way of the church of Jesus Christ. We have a hard time in reality, especially as Western Christians, in dealing with hardship or difficulty, dealing with cultural scorn. And guess what? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, maybe Ian and Bill don't suffer with this, but every once in a while, I kind of wish that we could go back to the good old 1950s and, you know, a pastor could be respected just for being a pastor. You may wish to go back to that kind of thing too, but if we are called to be these kind of people, servants with the authority, and at the same time, examples that are called to be humble, that is how we are called to lead, and that is the place that we lead out of. As we begin to demonstrate gospel grace to this great city of Hamilton, and notice what Paul says when he begins to describe all the mistreatment that he's going through. When that happens, he's not shaking his fist at the culture and at the world. What does he describe that he and the apostles are doing? When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Now hear me out on this one, but I think COVID has revealed something for many of our hearts. I'm not getting into the politics of this, but look, things have gotten difficult and we've demanded our rights rather than being willing to serve. When things have gotten tough, we've wilted often. When someone criticizes us, we want to fight back with everything and punch them harder and give a lower blow than that they gave. And if you don't believe me, you're not reading the same social email stuff and social media that I am, and it's Christians doing this. This calls us to a better, more beautiful way. The way of Christ, the one who when he was slandered and reviled and suffering on a cross, what was he doing there? He was blessing and forgiving and enduring for the sake of those who would call on his name. Church, I think this calls us to some heart examination here. Not just for leaders in a church, but if the leaders are the ones that we are called to emulate, it calls us to the very same place and same thing. 
to examine those very same heart issues and then to begin to call out upon God, would your grace work in me so that I can begin to reflect this kind of life? A life that's willing to lay down my respectability and my power and anything else for the sake of the world that needs to hear the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, and I've lived in this community close to 15 years now. I'm so glad you're here because you know why? This community needs it. This community loves to put on a veneer of respectability and put togetherness. They need this message just as much as any one of us. Live it, believe it. Father God, we, I don't know about anyone else, but this, this text pierces me to the heart because uh, I see in it not so much a reflection of Paul. I see in myself, if Paul was writing today, he could have very easily written this letter and called it First Hamiltonians and been talking to me. So Lord, would you begin to pull apart these idols of the heart that we have? Lord, not just for the sake of, of our own holiness, but for the sake of a city and people around us that needs to hear us steward these mysteries and speak highly of you, the crucified and risen one who lived and died and was raised again for our sake. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.